Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Awesome, that was really good, yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. All right, good afternoon. Uh, we're going to pick up uh, in Revelation 11 as we continue our series through this wild book of Revelation. Am I really loud, or is that just... Yeah? Okay. Can we adjust that? Um, cool. So uh, it, with this Revelation series, what we're talking about is the victory of Christ and uh, his church. Right? The victory of Christ and his church. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll just go ahead and dive right in. All right? Uh, Father, thank you for your word, uh, for these people, for my brothers and sisters, for King's Cross Church. Um, yeah, we're grateful that you have... Um, not only made us uh, and loved us, but that you've spoken to us so that we might know how to relate to you, how to know you, how to love you, and to hear the great news of how you have loved us. And so, um, Lord, I pray that as we work our way through this passage, verse by verse, uh, I pray that you would feed our souls um, for our good for the growth of one another, and for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, start with a story. In 1741, there was an English composer who was kind of going through a really hard year. He was down on his luck. He was broke. He had a hard time getting commissions. Uh, He previously had made a name for himself composing Italian operas, but at this moment in time, the English economy was suffering uh, his wallet was suffering, and so he was, he, was, he was down. But then two things happened that year. Uh, one, a friend of his took a summary of Jesus' life, a summary of Jesus' life written down his lyrics, and then commissioned him, commissioned this composer to set music to it, to compose music for these lyrics about Jesus' life. And uh, also, the second thing that happened is that uh, a well-known charity in the area uh, commissioned him. It was around the holidays, and so they commissioned him to perform. They asked for original music, a music that had not been heard before. And they said, can you make us some original music for this holiday event for us to, like, raise money for people in need during the holidays? And so uh, the composer... You know, figured, like, I'll kill two birds with one stone, one stone and, uh, and he, he started writing this music, and he grew so absorbed with the work that he didn't eat, and he hardly slept for days on end. At one point, 
his servant tried to bring him another bowl of food, another meal, uh, kind of wondering, like, I wonder if he's actually going to eat this one because he was so engrossed in his work. And the servant opened the door and was startled when he saw his master, this English composer, turned to him, and he's got, like, tears streaming down his face. And his master says, I feel like I just saw heaven before me and the great God himself. This composer went on to complete the vocal arrangements for multiple voices. He wrote three different parts, 260 pages of music in just three weeks. And then all the instrumentation for 35 different instruments he wrote in two days. And he didn't leave his house once over these 24 days. One biographer says, considering the immensity of the work and the short time involved, it will remain perhaps forever the greatest feat in the whole history of music composition. And the charity event that he wrote the music for, the, through that performance, the charity was able to raise 400 pounds, which you're probably wondering, like, what, is that, what does that mean today, right? That's like one and a half million dollars. It went so well that it's been used again and again and again for charity events around the holidays, around Christmas time, ever since. People say that this composition of music has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, helped the widow, and fostered the orphan more than any other musical production. The name of the composition is Messiah. The composer is George Frederick Handel. You probably know this Work as Handel's Messiah. You guys familiar with that? Right? You know, like around the holidays, like, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Like that, right? that's why I didn't make choir when I was in high school. Right? Like that, that famous, it's like in movies. It's in, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's in like Home Alone, right? Like it, it, it's, it's in so many holiday movies. You, you hear it in the malls at uh, holiday time. And, and, and uh, it's, it's just, it's a classic. Well, a couple years after he wrote this composition, the King of England, George II, attended a performance for Handel's Messiah. And at one particular moment, he was so moved by a phrase that was sung in that famous Hallelujah chorus, which is really just like three, three minutes of like just... So much music, like that, that famous hallelujah chorus is just like one small piece of the, uh, of, of the music. And during one moment, during the hallelujah chorus, King George II, he, he stood to his feet in reverence and awe, weeping himself. And following, you know, like the royal protocols at the time, the whole audience and the stadium rose to their feet as well. And that actually started a tradition. Remember, this is 1740s. That started a tradition that has endured for almost 400 years. For almost like half a millennia, people have done this, like rose to their feet at this particular moment. And do you know what made him stand to his feet in reverence? It was a phrase taken from our text this afternoon. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
It was the same portion of the lyrics that Handel was working on when he turned to his servant and said, I feel like I just saw all heaven before me and the great God himself. And it's, it's like my favorite part of, of the entire work. Like when they sing that line, they actually, if you, if you pay attention, they start soft. They start saying like the kingdom of this world is become and then it goes full throttle, gets turned to 11, and then it says, the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, he shall reign forever and ever. Like the music itself, the way that it's written, captures the theology of that verse, that the kingdom of the world is small, wilting, fading away, compared to the majesty and the glory of the kingdom of God, which is bursting on the scene in this text in Revelation 11. This passage gives us a vision of what's called the final consummation. It's where history, where all of history is headed. Everything that we've been reading up to so far uh, in Revelation, really everything preceding in all the scriptures is leading up to this point, to what's happening in Revelation 11, 15 through 19. In Revelation 2 and 3, we saw Jesus was addressing seven churches, which represent all the churches throughout history. In chapter 4 and 5, we see the arrival of the Lamb of God in all his glory, the only one who is worthy to break the seals of the scroll. In chapter 6 and 7, he unlocks the seven seals, exposing the plan of God. And then in chapters 8 through 11, there's the blowing of the seven trumpet blasts, which is with each blast is, is intended to, to wake up the world, to arouse the world's attention, calling men and women to repentance before the end comes. And if you remember what was said in chapter 10, verse 7, it says, when the, angel, the seventh angel blows his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. And then you don't hear anything about that seventh trumpet until, until now. Now we're here. This is the crescendo of history, the unchallenged reign of God, the kingdom of God bursting onto the scene to be unchallenged forevermore. It's what caused Handel to weep in reverence. So a big idea for our text, simply from that verse, is that the kingdom of this world is fading, the kingdom of God is coming, and neither of those things can be stopped. Point number one, we're gonna see in this text a proclamation to consider. A proclamation to consider, we see it in verse 15. It says, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, what's going on here? Why does it say that? In the end, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord, right? Because we, we've talked already in this series about how God is reigning now. Christ is reigning now, right? And so how do we make sense of this? Like, has there ever been a time where God is not the king of the world? No. So why does it say that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ? Now, to understand that, we need to go back a little further. And answer the question, what is the kingdom of the world? 
The kingdom of the world is really whatever rules and has power in this world. And the Bible tells us that because of sin, which has been around since the dawn of humanity, because of sin, our world is, is broken. Evil, suffering, death, plague the world. But this is not what God desires for his creation. It's not what it's, how it's supposed to be. The good news that we just read in verse 15 is that one day, the way that things are will be no more. And the way that things are supposed to be will finally be. That means that there's coming a day when evil, sin, Satan, and death will be no more. When pandemics and protests and anxiety and depression will be no more. When human trafficking and pornography, misogyny and racism and classism and all other kinds of oppression will be no more. There will be no more wars to be fought, no dictators sitting on thrones, no more shootings, no more abuse in any home or workplace, no more corruption in our governments, our businesses, or our churches. On that day, the lost will be found, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the crippled will walk, the hungry will be fed, the poor will be provided for, every orphan will have a home, the voiceless will sing and cry victory, the oppressed will be vindicated, and every tear that is ever shed will be wiped away by the nail-scarred hands of the risen Jesus Christ." And all his enemies will once and for all be destroyed. And all that is true, good, and beautiful will be restored and preserved to never fade or decay. Another way of saying that is the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of God and of his Christ forever and ever. So now, has that kingdom, that kingdom that we long for, that kingdom that we just meditated on for the last minute, has that kingdom, the kingdom of God, has it, has it come? Is the kingdom of God, is it present or is it future? Is it here now or are we still waiting for it to come? Like Revelation 11 verse 15 says. And the answer is yeah. Yes, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God has touched down in the coming of Christ. Pushing back the kingdom of darkness, pushing back the kingdom of the world. This is why Jesus said after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. That's Matthew 28. That's why Jesus, when he came, said he, he, said he came to pre pre uh, preach the message that the kingdom of God is at hand. Or in Luke 17, when the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God is going to come, Jesus says to them, the kingdom of God is now among you. But here's another verse to consider. From Jesus in Matthew 6.10, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, you guys pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now when Jesus tells us to pray that way, it sounds like, the kingdom hasn't arrived yet, right? Why does he say the kingdom is at hand, but then say pray to God like this? God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because in heaven it's done perfectly. 
we should pray for it to come and fully break onto the scene because there's a sense in which the kingdom of world still affects us while the kingdom of God has come here at hand. So how do we make sense of this? I think this diagram will help. Uh, this diagram, you've got, in the first century, you had this first century Jewish mindset at the time where they saw things simply as in two ages. It's this age right now and the age to come. This age, the present age, is what's corrupted by sin. That's why there's things that exist in this world that, that, that make us go, things should not be this way, right? So this age, this present age, is corrupted by sin, and the age to come is where, you know, where they believe the Messiah would come to destroy evil, sin, death, would bring peace and forgiveness and righteousness forevermore. They saw this as a straight line. Present age ends, the new age begins. But what Jesus and the rest of the New Testament uh, apostles, what they taught was that the two ages looked more like, 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 like this, where you have this age, and then overlapping this age is the age to come. And so when Jesus the Messiah came, he announced a very true reality. He announced the inbreaking of the age to come, inaugurating what we call the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus defeated the grave, the present age, the age to come, or the present age became the age to come, but that break is not a clean break. They overlap. And so the way that we're to understand this is that when Jesus returns, his second coming, when he returns at the end of these last days, if you remember, we established at the beginning of our series that right now what we're living in is the last days. The last 2,000 years of church history is the last days, right? Not, not some like future weird like year reality that you heard about like on K-Wave or something like that, right? Like no, right now, the way that people have understood this throughout church history is that right now we're living in the last days. And so when Jesus returns at the end of these last days, the kingdom of this world will finally, in all its fullness, become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, I think, in addition to this diagram, this analogy might help. It's kind of like how we have an election day and an inauguration day. Right, an election day, uh, that happens the first Tuesday of November, but the new president, whoever wins on election day, doesn't begin until January 20th, right? And so on the days in between, who's the winner? The new guy, right? The new guy. The opponent's already defeated. The news has already been announced. Nation prepares for their transition, right? Allegedly, that's how it should work, right? <laughs> like, I mean, dude, if you're like, please don't email me saying that, no, that's not how it worked last year, like, I'm turning my email off for two days, all right? <clears throat> so I know this isn't a perfect analogy, but you get my point, right? There's an a, election day and an inauguration day. And so in some sense, in some sense, where we're living in this time of history, of human history, is that awkward moment between the election and the inauguration. Christ, he's defeated Satan. 
He's already defeated. There's not going to be some future battle that's we're going to, you know, like, like go head to head. No, Christ has already defeated Satan through his resurrection. He's already defeated sin and death through his resurrection. The news of what he's accomplished is everywhere. We need to tell people this news. It's good for people to hear about this news, but opposition to Christ, the King of Kings, is still strong. He's the already but not yet king. His kingdom is an already but not yet kingdom. Now, is any of this important? Of course it is, otherwise I wouldn't be like talking about it, right? But let me, let me tell you why it's practically important for you. It's because this already and not yet idea is both how the kingdom of God works, but also how the working out of your salvation works. Your life is not a straight line with a clean break between the old you and the born-again you, between the unsaved you and the Christian you. That's not how it works. Right? That's our experience, right? Like, that's not how it works, where you go from unconverted, selfish, prideful you to, boom, holy you. Look at me now, right? That's not how it works. What happens is you have your life before Christ, And then, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in ways completely beyond you, just purely by God's grace, like you're regenerated by the Spirit. You're converted from unbeliever to believer. You're justified by your new faith. You're adopted into God's family. You fold into a local church. And now you are positionally in Christ, but you're not immediately Christ-like in every way. Still sin, but now you hate sin. That's new. You loved sin before, but now you hate it. You have new desires, a new nature, but you're growing into that new nature. That's why New Testament ethics are based on who you are in Christ. You see that phrase over and over again, in Christ. We're told to work out your salvation, make your calling and your election sure. We grow into the reality of who you are in Christ. That, by the way, is why we value things at King's Cross like like grace, safety with one another, time, respect, honor, We're all in process. So look, if you're, if you're a Christian, you are already holy and not yet holy and transforming into being holy. The kingdom is already here and not yet here, and it's getting here. But our text talks about a day. Verse 15 tells us of a day where the kingdom breaks in in all its fullness. This announcement celebrates God's final answer to that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will, in Revelation 11 verse 15, God's will is now being done to never be contested again. How does verse 15 end? It says, he shall reign forever and ever. Not even the possibility 
of rebellion or insurrection? How is that possible? Because God, at that point in history, will no longer have enemies. Point number two, we see a praise to hear. A praise to hear. Verse 16, it says, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, they fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Notice it doesn't say who is and was and is to come like it says elsewhere. No, it says who is and who was. He doesn't have to say who is to come because he has come in all his fullness. And it says, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. For the next few minutes, I want you to hear these words. I want you to saturate your mind and your heart in these words and these verses in worship. This, what's being described here, is passionate worship. Look how they respond, these 24 elders. They fall down on their faces. I mean, these, these elders are glorious creatures in their own right. We were previously told that they had their own throne, thrones near God's throne. These are high-ranking angelic creatures being described as elders. I, I want you, do you see how big God is here? Like he, This picture we have of the Lord God Almighty, like he's not your homeboy. He's not your spiritual genie to grant your wishes. He's not a divine fortune cookie to tell you some proverbs for the day. Like he's, this is the Lord God Almighty, the one who makes the angels sing, who makes the demons tremble, who makes these elders fall down on their faces. What we see here is any desire that any creature has to guard our own dignity before God is, is pointless. He humbles us. That's why they fall face down in worship. Specifically, they fall face down in worship responding to the news that's proclaimed also in verse 15. That the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 16 that we just read, it says, and the 24 elders, but it could also read, then the 24 elders. Verse 17 says that they gave thanks. Why? It says, for you have taken, God, you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. You see, that tells us that this praise that bursts out of their mouth when they fall face down, this praise is a response to who God is. And what he's done. See, this praise is not superficial. Their worship isn't superficial. It's not contrived. It's not about arousing our emotions like the prophets of Baal with like fire or mood lights or color gels, fog machines, and guitar swells. I was talking to a buddy earlier this week who um, previously, he previously worked at like this mega church, and I'm not, just to be clear, I'm not like anti-mega church, all right? So don't say, think that I'm anti-mega church. I'm not. One of my, one of my 
heroes is the Reformed Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who had one of the first megachurches in London in the 1800s. I named my, I've named my first son after him, right? But like, he did it right. Like this, Charles Spurgeon, like he knew the name of every single member in his church, like almost 6,000 members. And he wrote to them constantly, like letters, snail mail. Um, probably shouldn't have said that because I don't want anyone to expect that I should do that for you. But <laughs> I'll try, all right? Um, but, so I'm not anti-medical church. But this buddy, he was super bummed how when his church, um, when their numbers started dropping to a fraction of what they once were because of COVID and all that, how one of their responses was, um, man, we got to up our game. We got to get this new LED wall. They spent like tens of thousands of dollars on this new LED wall, which, man, when I heard that, it just made me think, hey, that'd be pretty awesome, right? Like to <laughs> picture it, right? So we're going to pass the offering plate at this point in time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, like, you see, the point is, like, their praise wasn't, wasn't contrived in any way. It was a response to what happened in verse 15. It was a swelling of joy brought about by a renewed awareness of who God is. They're retold who God is. They're retold what God has done in Christ. That's why we are committed to what we call gospel-centered worship. Right, look, this, this effort is a careful, intentional pursuit from us. If you talk to any of our worship leaders, like, we, we know that. Look, emotions, they can be faked, right? They can be self-generated. They can be crowd-generated. And so we, like, carefully ensure that the foundation of our worship is the truth of who God is and what he's done. That's why you'll find that we have a lot of old hymns on regular rotation. Because a lot of modern worship songs, to put it kindly, are just kind of lame, right? Like if you, if, if the words in a song, like if it could be applied to like your boyfriend and not Jesus, then there's probably a better song, right? Like that we could use for worship. You see, the object of our worship is one who the scriptures reveal about. It's the Lord God Almighty. The verse says, the one who is and who was. Speaking about God's eternality, he's always been, and his love for us has always been with us. He says, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The tense here says, you, God, have taken control permanently. History has now entered your indisputable reign and can never be challenged. That's the praise that we need to hear. That's the praise that we need to echo. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, the nations raged, but your wrath came. Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms, you know this is a clear reference to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, which says, why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? 
The king of the earth take their the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. And then Psalm two goes on to say that the one enthroned in heaven is going to get the last word. The nations rage; they plot in vain. Right. Each nation tries to be on the top. Every, each nation tries to, to, to exercise some type of like uh, fake, like divine power and dominion. But by the time the psalm ends, we're told that the one enthroned in heaven, God himself, he gets the last word. Now look, it's hard. It's hard for us to really feel and get a sense of the significance of this because we live in America, Right? Home of the brave. We don't know what it's like to live under an oppressive regime or under a government who is violently hostile to Christianity. But this is the reality for millions of Christians in the world, even today. And even millions and millions more throughout history, including the original audience that John is writing to when he wrote these words. And look, if that's your reality, if your life is on the line because of your allegiance to Christ, if that's your reality, then these words, they hit different. They hit different, don't they? These words provide a whole new level of vindication. Keep reading. Revelation 11, he continues in verse 18. He says, the time for the dead, this is the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now, that word time, when he says the time, that tells us that God has a decisive plan to enact his justice against evil, sin, and death and the enemies of his people. Remember, there's, there's two sides to God's justice that we've seen again and again throughout our Revelation series. The first judgment works out positively. And look, when we, we like to talk about that side, right? Like it, the first judgment works out positively, talking about rewarding your servants. This refers to all God's people, to all God's church throughout history. We read about in chapter, earlier in chapter 11, that includes the prophets. Um, when he says for rewarding your um, servants, that, that, that phrase was in chapter 7 of Revelation when he says, uh, the prophets and saints. We read about those earlier in chapter 11 and also in chapter 5. When it talks about those who fear God's name, we read about that in chapters 2 and 3. And when he uses the phrase, both small and great, that's one of John's favorite phrases by which he means that all Christians are the recipients of this reward. God doesn't play with partiality. He doesn't play favorites. No, all Christians, regardless of race, status, class, all Christians will be recipients of this reward. And then there's the other side. 
We all want justice. We all long and pray for justice. But there's another side that we don't like to talk about, the less sexy side of justice, where he says, for destroying, he says, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. I want you to notice the play on words here, basically saying, look, what come, goes around comes around. That those who destroy the earth by virtue of their indwelling sin will be destroyed by the one who's going to put an end to sin, who has put an end to sin. Those words are an echo of Psalm 2 again, when in Psalm 2 it says, God shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The only difference between that phrase in Psalm 2 and this phrase, destroying the destroyers of the earth in Revelation 11, is that in Revelation 11, on that final day, there's going to be no more time for repentance. No more time for turning back to God. This is the end. The kingdom is here in its fullness. This is the end. God takes power. He takes his power. He begins to reign. His wrath comes. His judgment begins. Christians are rewarded. The destroyers are destroyed. This is the final end, the final consummation. And then our passage ends in verse 19, where we see a picture to see. A picture to see, verse 19, he says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Those last things that he just described there, that list, I mean, it might, might seem random, but it's not. All of those things, lightning, thunder, hail, earthquakes, you see those things listed out in apocalyptic literature. And when you do see it in apocalyptic literature, it's always the background music whenever God is making a personal appearance, signaling that God is personally present. He's here. He's imminent. That's the picture I want you to see in verse 19, the realized presence of God. The Apostle Paul talks about how right now, our, in, at this moment in our lives, we see reality dimly, like through a mirror. But one day, we're going to see clearly, like face to face. We're going to see God's presence face to face. Now, why does... He have this vision. Why does John in Revelation 11, why does he have this vision mentioned at the end of verse 19 about the Ark of the Covenant? You see, the Ark of the Covenant, if you're familiar with your Old Testament theology, the Ark, uh, Ark of the Covenant was in this place in the temple called the Holy of Holies. It was this untouchable, untouchable place surrounded by various rooms in the temple. And it symbolized, the Ark of Covenant symbolized the presence of God. It was made according to the instructions that were given to the Israelites by God in the desert. And the reason it had all these intricacies with how it was made, with how it was decorated, with all the rooms and layers to it, and the curtain, it was a physical manifestation of God's 
holiness. It was to teach his people by virtue of a living illustration that God is holy. And he's, he's present, he's with us, but he's kind of untouchable. He's kind of to be, to be feared and revered rightly. And touching the ark meant death. That's why you needed to have like a, a special clan of priests. And among them, you had the high priest who, who knew all the things to say and the garments to wear. And there was this whole ritual that they would do every time that he would, he would enter in to lay a sacrifice at the ark of the covenant. And losing the ark of covenant was a big deal. Right? And that happened in the Babylonian conquest we read about in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant was lost, never to be found again. Even Indiana Jones couldn't find it. Right? Like he, the real Ark, he couldn't find the real Ark. And, and John, in Revelation 11, he sees the temple doors open. He sees them opened up. He sees through all the layers, through all the rooms, through the curtain, right at the Ark of the Covenant. He can look right at it. So here's the best news of the good news, that when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, God himself will be with us in all his fullness. Remember, these are symbols in Revelation, you're not going to actually see the Ark of the Covenant in the end of time. But what it represented to Israel, with the gold cherubim, with the wings over their heads pointing to each other, and the space between there was the throne of God. And when it says that the Ark of the Covenant was seen by John here in Revelation 11, it's saying that the believers in Jesus, who are now home on the last day, will not only have perfect access to God, which was won by Jesus on the cross when the court curtain torn in two, but that in glory, in our days of glory, we get to see God present with us. And the fullness of what we will see belongs in a future sermon. Another episode, you'll have to wait for it. But one thing to rejoice in is that the people who see this, they've entered into life in all its fullness. So practically what we do with this, I just want to leave two things with you. One, I want you, Christian, to look forward to his presence. Look forward to that unadulterated presence while you still enjoy it now. We live in the now and the not yet. If you belong to Jesus, God is present with you in ways that every person longs for but just doesn't know. And you get to experience much of that now. But I also want you, with that picture in your mind, to look forward to his unfiltered presence in the end of time. Number two, I want you to look forward to his vindication when the destroyers will be destroyed, when those who hate us will be judged. But I want you to do that while you evangelize now. 
We talked a few weeks ago about how there are real people, family members, friends, coworkers, people whose faces we can see, whose names that we know, that don't yet know the love and grace and mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. And so the vindication that's coming for God's people and for God at the end of time, like, that's not something to gloat in. That's something that should make us weep with tender hearts for those that we want to spend eternity with. So tomorrow, tomorrow we're going to return to work waiting for Jesus, waiting, watching, and witnessing until that final day breaks in and all the shadows will finally fade. But until then, we pray with our Lord Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.